Hello to all you lovely listeners and welcome back to season four of Therapy Works. I'm your host, Judah Samuel, a best-selling author, psychotherapist, and now self-proclaimed podcaster. And these are my daughters. Hi, I'm Emily. And I'm Sophie. Each week, we invite you into our therapy room, where we'll be joined by a variety of voices, some well-known and some unknown. Together, we'll be navigating some of life's biggest challenges. That's right. We'll be diving deep into conversations about struggles people have faced or are still facing. We believe that sharing these stories is not just cathartic, but can also be profoundly healing. Absolutely. As fellow psychotherapists, we're here to help you, our wonderful listeners, expand your understanding of therapy and its transformative power. After each conversation, Emily, Sophie and I will reflect on what we've learned and how these insights can be applied to your own lives. It's our mission to prove that meaningful conversations, even those that contain difficult emotions, can be a source of growth, resilience and hope. Whether you're a long-time listener or just joining us for the first time, we're thrilled to have you with us on this journey. We hope that each episode leaves you with something valuable to carry into your own life. And without further ado, let's dive straight into this week's episode and start unpacking life's challenges together. I am delighted to be with you, Maria. This is Maria Endemule, who was born in Scotland, lives in Switzerland, and was diagnosed with MS. Um, lovely to Hello, see you, Maria. thank you. I'm so grateful to be with you today, Julia. Thank you. So do you want to tell us about the challenge you're facing or you've had to overcome? Yes, um, the challenge I've been facing these past 12 years has been the diagnosis of MS, multiple sclerosis. And it hasn't just been the diagnosis, but I would say the prognosis. The way in which the doctors predicted my future for me in that it was to be expected that I would have progressive decline because it was progressive disease and that I was encouraged to go home and rearrange my home to accommodate a wheelchair. And Oh my goodness. In that first diagnosis, in that first I would say meeting. within a month or so because my health was, Gosh. you know, going downhill at a rapid rate. Like... I didn't recognize my body anymore and I was just losing function um, very quickly and I had extremely absolutely um, and of course I had lots of questions but um, the questions I was asking appeared at that time um, not to be answered yeah. So you were given this sort of bleak trajectory so I mean I guess you felt it you know like my life as I knew it, is over. There was the life before the diagnosis and now there's the life with MS. And that life with MS isn't a life that I would choose. It's me, my body basically falling apart in front of my eyes. What was your emotional response to that? What, how did you, what happened um, to you? Yeah, it's a good question. I instantly, the fighting spirit kicked in. Like I'm one of these people that, there is never a problem, only a solution. Like I'm a glass full kind of, wow. a glass half full. Yeah, and that's the yeah, way yeah. I've got through life. So this was no different, you know. It, it couldn't have come at a worse time, Julia. 
Um, I'd never been so happy. I was, I just got married and I just packed Mm. my entire life into a suitcase and had left my beloved Highlands of Scotland and which was difficult, I have to say. Yeah. Oh, isn't it? I know. Like you can take the girl out of Scotland, but you can't take Scotland out the girl. (laughs) And here I was now because I'd fallen madly in love with this incredibly handsome and amazing man who happened to be Swiss. And it didn't matter where he was from. I was going wherever he was going. It was as simple as that. So happily, you know, married just a few weeks, you know, and I'm experiencing my body falling apart very, very quickly and knowing that, you know, there's something not right. What was the physical signs of that falling Mm. apart? I'd say the first symptom I had was at our wedding, actually, when we were having our Kaylee and I could feel pins and needles like running down my spinal cord. And of course, I was dancing with my new husband. I wasn't going to give it much thought. And you kind of think, Mm. is that have I drunk too much alcohol? (laughs) Yeah, is it excitement? What the hell's going on? Mm. And then I arrived in Switzerland a few days later. And um, again, these um, pins and needles seemed to be spreading down my legs and my arms. And then I was experiencing some numbness as well. And... Gosh. And then my husband very kindly enrolled me into an intensive French class because I'm in the French speaking part in the the ski slopes here. And uh, it's French spoken here and I had to learn French. And I remember looking at the projector screen in the French class and not being able to retain anything. So, of course, now I know it was like the foggy brain. And my brain was just... That comes with MS, yeah. So all of those signs are signs of MS, aren't they? Tingling aching mm. foggy brain optic yeah optic neuritis experienced my vision loss i was beginning to see things not so clearly and i also experienced anxi- anxiety and before i didn't know what anxiety was but i also felt like i think it's now known as an ms hug it was felt as if someone was sitting on my chest and i couldn't breathe like everything was happening happening so fast but this was supposed to be the happiest time of my life and yet i was happy yes you're so happy but your body was doing the reverse it was um rebelling and not operating well but also frightening with the new husband in the sense that you you don't want to be a different person than the one you agreed to marry him, that he's suddenly facing a different person. Absolutely. You're so right. And it took me a wee while to confess how I was feeling um, because I felt embarrassed. And of course, all my family were back in Scotland. I was the only one in Switzerland and I knew nobody apart from my husband. Gosh, so you were completely alone. Yeah, and it was just difficult to navigate at all. So I was like, we have to go to the doctor. So we went to the doctor. And of course, <laughs> gosh, he dismissed me and said I was depressed because I was homesick. Yeah. Seriously. Oh, my goodness. I now know that that's what we call gaslighting. Um, interestingly mm. enough, I just read an article that last year, similarly, that was the the word of the year, gaslighting in year 2022. And 
when you're not believed, when you're told that what you're saying is you making it up, that there's something else wrong with you or there's nothing wrong with you or whatever you're saying is being denied by the other person that's not exactly true. and all too often it can happen it really saddens me because I think nobody knows us better than ourselves ultimately you know we're living yeah. in these bodies of ours and we know when something's not feeling right and so for me to be dismissed that way it kind of ignited within me a new focus to get to the root of this so, you know, as well as trying to navigate my life in a new country and, yeah, new language, just married. And, you know, my husband and I were just getting to know each other because our relationship was over Skype before. We weren't really much in our com- each other's company. Gosh, so it was a gosh. bit of a whirlwind. So you hadn't physically lived together before? Nope. And everything was new, Juliet. Wow. Everything. There's another whole story there, isn't there, about how you met and <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, it was it was a strange time. So my days then became full of researching my condition. And that kinda upset me a bit because over here we have to pay to see a doctor. Every time you see a doctor, you're gonna get a bill the next day. And that was new to me as well. We take NHS for granted, don't we? Absolutely. So I was forever comparing as well my beloved Scotland to Switzerland. I was like, well, why are all these bills coming through our door? And my husband was like, well, we have to pay to see a doctor. And I was like, what? That was new to me. I wasn't really aware that that even existed. It was a bit naive. Um, so I spent a lot of time researching. And then while I was researching, I discovered that my symptoms sounded awfully like MS. So this is Google Doc. Exactly. I know we're not always encouraged to do it, but I think it saved my life, Julia. <laughs> really? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you went back to the doctor saying, listen, I think this is MS. I did. The same doctor that dismissed me. And he was reluctant. I said, can I please see a neurologist? I need to see a neurologist. And then I became a bit more assertive. Like I really felt that my health was my responsibility and I was going to get to the Mm. bottom of this because I had married a man I love dearly and I am going to live my life in Switzerland the way I want and not be defined by what's going on in my body. Like this needs to stop because it was closing down at a rapid rate and I was having none of it. Like I was so determined. Mm, Terrifying there. Mm. Yeah, so he reluctantly... And referred me to a neurologist and sure enough, all the scans, MRI, the lumbar puncture, and it came back that I indeed had MS. And yeah, that was a shocker. Yeah. What was your reaction? Um, I had lots of questions initially. It wasn't the time to cry about it. It was something to do. It was a time to do something about it. Right. Find, find a solution. So, of course, I was asking all these questions. Okay, so what do I do now? Do I have to, my family, my husband and I want to start a family? And the reply was, well, you can't, you have to go on medication. So you can't have a family when you're on this medication. And I was like, wow, Gosh. okay, didn't, what, what's going on here? Okay, so do I, do I take the medication, what, for two weeks and then I'll be okay? And no. You have to inject yourself with medication for the rest of your life to slow down the progression of the disease. And, oh gosh, it was just that. I felt like, my husband and I often talk about it, and it was like we were in front of a car headlights, you know, dazzled, and we're like, what is happening here? And it was done so 
matter-of-factly, like almost inhumane. Yeah, it sounds brutal. Like, this is your diagnosis. This is the thing to do. Take these pills and you're going to slowly degenerate and be in a wheelchair. And you can't have kids like boom, boom, boom. No compassion, no empathy, no encouragement to do anything else that might improve your action. Exactly. And the word you just used right now is exactly it, Julia. Brutal. It was. It was very mm. brutal. And that's what really, oh, I, yeah, upset me. Hurt yeah. Me. Yeah, I can see it in your eyes now. It's still there. Like the way people tell you things makes an enormous difference for your capacity to manage them. Absolutely. And it would appear that I would then start asking questions that nobody could answer. And I remember thinking, okay, well, well why, why do I have this? That was my first question because a diagnosis, yeah, exactly. Me? And also a diagnosis, it tells you what you have, but it doesn't tell you why you have it. So mm. now I was like on another mission as in to find out what the heck is going on with my body. Just because mm. the doctors couldn't tell me didn't mean I couldn't find out. Like I was on a mission. You were on a mission. Yeah, and that <laughs> yes. actually excited me, I have to say. Like I can see. I remember at one point asking all these questions and the neurologist getting furious with me. Like it's just the way it is. We we can't we don't know why MS occurs. And of course now we know differently. That was twelve years ago. So t tell me what you understand what led you to get it and then what you've done to improve your mm. outcome? Well, I'm a big believer that the story of her life is the story of her health. And yes, I really, really do. Feel, that's why I love that book you wrote. Um, Every Family Has a Story. It resonated with me so much, Julia. Thank you for writing that. It was beautiful. Oh, thank beautiful. you. Beautiful. Mm, and it's so true. Um, every family has a story, but equally, you know, every body, as in the physical body, has a story too. And I think we're all walking autobiographies. Yes, you know, we're living, breathing, walking autobiography. Our physical being is our mind, body, and the story of what inputs we've given it, whether it's words, food, attention, drugs, alcohol, water, whatever it is, that's what we're, we've got, isn't it? Absolutely, absolutely. So now, um, because I was introduced to functional medicine and it's all about, you know, thinking and linking and getting to know the person in front of you and what might have occurred in their life that is the reason that they are now in a dis, dis eased state, you know? Um, and I really, you know. I haven't heard that phrase, thinking and linking. I like that. Yeah, it's really empowering. It, I find that really empowering. Functional medicine for me, just where you see the person in front and really just looking back on that person's life and joining the dots and understanding why, you know, they are sick what's happened in their life and what might they need to do and what things do they have to get rid of in their life and in their body for them to move forward so that's basically what I've been doing these past 12 years and it's been quite a journey because initially I started doing this alone because nobody was coming to save me Julia and um, you know the medical profession it's absolutely fantastic for acute care, isn't it? In terms of if I have a heart attack right now, it's amazing. 
and the support. Chronic, it's terrible. But chronic, there seems to be, yeah, it's not as effective. And there appears mm. to be this name it, blame it, tame it attitude. And the person remains sick, mm. unfortunately. And then we have that be- progressive decline, which I was... Um, told I would have so I initially when the neurologist had said to me yeah I had this diagnosis my first question was do I have to change my diet like to me it seemed obvious because I knew myself Mm -hmm. that my diet was rubbish (laughs) Um, but the reply was no nothing to do with what you nothing and now we know that's so like I recently just discovered a fantastic neurologist but I had avoided them for many years um but now I've got a fantastic one and he too agrees that you know food is information to the body so we have to give it the right information for it to function and feel well so I started with um, nutrition and dabbling, not really knowing what I was doing. And nutrition, that's like not no processed foods, eating fresh foods, vegetable, varied diet, for your biome, kind of that kind of thing, not much alcohol. Exactly. Nothing too much. Exactly. Everything. Well, initially, I didn't really know what I was doing. I was listening to my body and I was taking a food diary and I would listen intently. I didn't know anything about nutrition, but I was very, very aware that there were certain foods that seemed to exasperate my symptoms. And I became very, you know, I was checking in on my body all the time. It was my body that was telling me how I was feeling. Giving you the And then when I, my health started improving, because of your diet. Diet and lifestyle. And then, of course, we discovered that there was also a lot of toxins in my body. You know, there was heavy metals in my body. And when I was doing my research, I stumbled across um, a link between heavy metals and MS because heavy metals increase a risk of neurodegeneration. And, you know, there's some genetics like the APOE4 one that reduces our mercury detoxifying capacity. And of course, I had realized that um, a couple of weeks before I got married, I had been exposed to mercury. Silver fillings contain mercury. Um, I don't even know why they're called silver fillings when there's 50% uh, mercury mercury in them. But because of, you know, some people can have mercury fillings all their lives and live and function fine, but this is where genetics come in, this is where diet comes in, this is where nutritional status comes in, stress, adverse childhood events. And, you know, when I look back in my life, it's as if there was, I see my life as there was this kind of bucket and there was all these toxins that were filling this bucket. And then all of a sudden, the last thing that just spilt it was my exposure to the mercury within the silver fillings. And I think when I look back, that's what just triggered the whole immune response and just gave me this MS for me. It's like one disease, but many causes. There's one one size does not fit all, you know? So you had many components that were leading to it. I mean, you seem so cheerful and well-loved. So I can't imagine that you had adverse childhood experiences, but maybe you've dealt with them. I have dealt with them, yeah. Yeah, there were some things that I would have said a few years ago I wish had never happened. But I understand now it's those things that have had happened that made me who I am today. And I think it was those things that happened in my childhood too that enabled me to 
question my diagnosis and question the prognosis and make changes to my diet and lifestyle that would ultimately change the trajectory of the disease. Can you talk about then what the, what happened and then how that led you to be an examiner rather than a victim, as it were? I guess, how can I say it? There were challenges, for sure, and disappointments. And I think people that I looked up to and respected turned out not to be the people I thought they were if you know what I mean, without kind of going into... They break your trust. Exactly. And therefore, having that experience allowed me to question everything, as in just because a person in authority says it doesn't necessarily mean it's right. So from that experience of someone you trust breaking your trust meant that you didn't look at authority in the same way. So that was played out then with the medical profession. So you thought, hang on. So you took that information in a way, that experience, and that's what led you to be on this Sherlock Holmes mission (sighs) and understand for you personally, what were the components that led to your MS diagnosis, which was your predisposition, your genetic code, your childhood experiences, your diet, and then the silver stroke mercury filling that tipped you into actually having MS. Yeah. So that you've changed all of that now. Yes. And tell us what the outcome is. Have you had a child? Have you? Unfortunately not. Sadly not. Oh, I know. What? Tell me about that. I think that is my greatest oh, sadness. So oh, crikey, it really does touch a nerve. And I don't really talk about it much. Yeah. Because I think for so many years, it was all about getting me better. And the, one of the reasons, you know, I think when you're improving your health, you've got to know what you need your health for. And one of the reasons yes. I needed my health for was to have a family. Yes. So that was what was my inspiring you exactly and then you know I then decided to go and study nutrition because I realized the power of nutrition and so I I remember for three years from 2015 to 2018 I was spending every second weekend commuting from Geneva to Edinburgh to study this because I needed to know more I really was aware that my health was my responsibility. And, you know, we can be so grateful for a medical profession, as you say. But, you know, they don't know everything. Like, who does? None of us do know everything. Mm. And I needed to educate myself. I really did. So I spent all that time, those three years. So it was like, okay, well, we won't have a family right now because I have to do this. And then, you know, time slips away. And, you know, then we had the pandemic and and all that time we were trying, but it just wasn't happening. And I'm going to be 45 soon. My husband already is. And it's, it's just the way it is. We're just really, really both very, very grateful to be alive, to be honest. My husband had a brain tumour, interestingly enough. Gosh, so you've both had big health challenges. Yeah, when we discovered that um, the silver fillings were driving the progression of the MS for me, like I still have MS, 
But when we discovered that that was definitely um, perpetuating everything and worsening my symptoms, um, when we I removed my mercury fillings, the dentist happened to ask my husband, do you have any? And he said, yeah, I do. He had four. And uh, when he looked in his mouth, he asked him, have you had any health problems? And he said, well, actually, four years ago, I had a brain tumor. And he said, I'm not surprised. You've got a silver filling leaking. So that was a big shocker. Um, and yeah, I yeah. should add here, Terrible. just because you've got silver fillings, you know, it's it doesn't mean that you have to get them removed immediately because it's really, really dangerous. They're, not every dentist can remove them safely. And it's really, really important that you have a dentist that is a biological dentist and they're using the SMART protocol because if they're not, you could be sicker than, yeah, yes. which happened to me. And it's very unique who it affects and who it doesn't Exactly, affect. like we're all different. So one part, like my dad's mouth's full of fillings and he's fine. So we're all unique. Having the diagnosis, the unforeseen consequences, whilst you are healthy and you're now trained as a nutritionist and a functional medicine health coach, the price that you have paid is infertility in some way. Was it the age? Was it that the time that you took to start trying, you then were quite old and... Tell me what you understood is the reasons for it. Yeah, well, I think the mercury didn't help. Certainly that does affect fertility. Yeah. There's no doubt about it. But then there was my husband as well, and obviously it takes two. And um, there were some, um, yeah, there were some concerns on his side. And there, there was an option to go down, you know, the other route to try and have a baby. But, you know, I yeah, exactly. Um mm. But, you know, we both spoke about it and, you know, he'd gone through so much with a brain tumour, like he's lucky to be alive, he's a walking miracle. And, you know, I had experienced a challenging time and we're like, well, if it's to be, it'll be. If it's not, it's not. We've got each other. And we're really happy. We're just creating our lives together and very grateful every day for a new day. It's changed our life, Julia. See, when you get a diagnosis like that, I don't know. It just changed how you view the world. So it's really given you that unique sense of gratitude for every day that you feel well and alive. Oh, yeah. And that in some ways protects you from the suffering of what you can't have. Because the sense is overwhelming gratitude for what you do have. So, of course, you would have wanted to have a baby and you felt the hit as you mm. said that. But it isn't something that feels like a daily loss or, I mean, how is it challenging you? It feels like you've come to terms with it, that I'm happy to be alive. But in the process to leading that, did you grieve it? Did you, how did you manage that? It's really interesting, isn't it? Because I find when you get a diagnosis, your world becomes quite a noisy place and a lot of people have a lot to say. People have opinions. Don't yeah. they just? And... Some people, they just don't think. <laughs> like I've had people say to me, oh, it's, it's good. It's a blessing that you don't have children because you have MS. Oh, my goodness. Maria, I'm so sorry. That's, 
insensitive beyond belief. I know. I, I've lost count of the amount of people that said that because when I live my life on a daily basis... Seriously, the number of people that have said that. Oh, oh absolutely. And you know what's really interesting with MS? That, you know, during the pregnancy, a lot of the symptoms disappear. Like people feel great that have um, MS diagnosis and they carry a baby, but it's often afterwards that unfortunately they can have a relapse or flare. So, yeah, I've really struggled with that, with people saying to me, maybe it's for the best. Like, who are they to say and know what's for the best? I've had people say to me too, oh, well, you know, at least you live in Switzerland. As if, as if that's of any relevance. It's really interesting how people, I don't know, just speak. In ter- I, I'm not sure if they know what they're saying or doing. <laughs> I don't think they fully realise, but I think what people try and do is they try and make it better by reframing it and giving it back to you as a good thing. When actually, whatever it is that people are dealing with, all they want is for it to be acknowledged and allowed and that we don't need them to shape it as a positive because only you can work out for you what you can take from it that you can learn to grow from and what you take from it, which gives you pain. Absolutely. You're so right. Yeah, it's it's a really interesting one. I feel that an MS diagnosis and even um, having no children almost becomes a people filter. Yes, about who you want to see and not see. Because, you know, I noticed a post that you put recently about glimmers. And it's so true. It's so true because, you know, I'm very, very acutely aware what my triggers are. I'm so aware of that. And I think that's really, really important. Anyone that's diagnosed with MS that they know what their triggers are. And these past few years, I have focused on my glimmers. So for those that didn't listen to my post, glimmers are the opposite of triggers. So triggers ignite... Um, a sense of trauma or, or distress. And a glimmer is looking for something that soothes you and calms you. It might be a sunset. It might be the smell of baking bread. It might be stroking a dog or having a hug with a friend. So those small glimmers, you know, are protective of your nervous system, basically. It's so important. And you just mentioned the nervous system. And of course, it's the nervous system that's been affected by MS. And I think, you know, the way I've dealt with it too is like focusing on the people that are good for my nervous system because quite frankly there's a lot of people that aren't and negativity I just walk away from it it's like I'm grateful to be alive you know I'm grateful to be able to put this cup to my mouth there was a time I had no feeling from my chin down Julia at my sickest at my sickest I had no feeling from my chin down my husband was spoon feeding me Seriously, Maria, that is devastating picture. That I mean, you were virtually paralysed. Yeah, completely. I I couldn't do anything for myself. Like I couldn't even go to the bathroom. It was so humiliating. Oh, and my husband hadn't signed up to be my carer at thirty-five. No, no, no. he was wanting to have a full, healthy, loving, sexual life together. Exactly. And you weren't able to do anything. It was horrendous. And you said humiliating. There is something, isn't there, about sickness 
that feels humiliating, like it feels like a first personal failure, which is quite bizarre, but is what happens. It is. I've learned to love myself. I've had to because, you know, it's the first thing I think even, you know, for someone given a diagnosis of MS, it's the first thing I encourage people to do is love themselves because if you don't love yourself, you're not going to listen to your body. You're not going to give your body the food it requires to function well. If you don't love yourself, you're not going to set boundaries. You're not going to say no. You're not going to distance yourself from people that are not good for your nervous system. And there's no doctor that can tell you who's good for your nervous system. It's only us that know that. Hmm. Well, you know, some people, when they hear you have to love yourself, they kind of say, I don't even know what that means. I, I, I don't know how to love myself. Do you have a lens on that that you could help people understand it for themselves? Oh, boy, that's a really good question, Julia. I'll be honest with you. I was brought up in a religion that was very um, strict. And as a child... Punishing. Um, there was a lot of rules and regulations. Um, and we're like to love yourself that was out of the question a sin oh absolutely you weren't to think too much of yourself and you had to stay in the background and um of course we know that our brain has developed you know in our younger years so that's all i knew and it was about dying to yourself because anything you wanted to do you know was ultimately a sin in the sense that you had to put god's will first so for me, I had to get rid of all that. You know, it's interesting because within functional medicine, I attended a webinar recently and they spoke about the three Ps in people that have a diagnosis of autoimmunity. And the, those three Ps were people-pleasing, um, pain of the past, and perfectionism. Gosh, that's very helpful, isn't it? Isn't it? And I think when that is a person's environment growing up, which was mine and many others, loving yourself doesn't come into it. No, no, because it's people pleasing, it's looking outwards. Yeah. So I think it's really, really important to check in with yourself. But all this has taken me years to do. So, But some of that, just to take that a step further, maybe loving yourself is to turning to yourself and just checking in with yourself and seeing what you need. You know, it doesn't have to be like some grandiose scheme. It's like, yeah. what, what's going on? Am I feeling scared? Do I need to do something that can help me feel secure? Am I hungry? Yeah. Am I angry? Have a kind of sense of internal dialogue and reflection so that you meet your internal needs with, you know, compassion. You've hit the nail on the head. That's just it, Julia. And that is exactly what I was encouraged not to do growing up. Yes. yes. So when we talk about adverse childhood events, yeah, it was all about the other people. You know, children should be seen and not heard. And I really felt that from a very, very young age. And you had to fit in to be approved. It feels so punishing it feels very contracting that like you can't be yourself you have to be this curated yeah. version of yourself 
Absolutely, exactly. So when I look back, I know why I was given the diagnosis of MS. Everything makes sense to me. And I find that empowering. You know, when the doctor said to me, <laughs> you're going to have to go home and, you know, rearrange your home to accommodate a wheelchair. There was not one cell in my body that believed him. Not one cell. That's amazing. I felt this inner strength, this inner power. And I remember looking at him in the face that day. Oh, I wasn't liked. And I said, I hear <laughs> what you're saying, but I don't believe you. But you did get very, very ill. Do you still have flares that you, I mean, you still got MS. Tell me how you are now and what's got you there. I was doing really, really, really well for years. I think changing my diet and lifestyle. And lifestyle is like exercise, doing meditation, reducing the stress. In Absolutely. Like removing what's making the body sick, removing what you have too much of and giving your body what you don't have enough of. Oh, that's lovely. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. So that's what my mission was and that's what I've been doing. You've obviously got very ill and had mm. terrible times. Mm. So you, you obviously got to a point where you were very, very ill, where you were virtually paralyzed. Mm despite changing your lifestyle and your nutrition and taking out the bad things and putting in the good things. Yeah. You're living with MS. What's your relationship with it now? What's coming to my mind right now is, yeah, I do believe that MS happened for me, not to me. Um, I can say yes, that. that now. helps. You feel less of a victim. Exactly. I might not have said that earlier. <laughs> mm. And when I was really, really sick, one of the reasons I was so sick, Julia, when I had no feeling from my chin down was because I had removed too many toxins from my body at the one time. So your body was struggling to readjust, was to recalibrate. One thing you should never do when you're removing heavy metals is you shouldn't be constipated. And I was, so there was no exit out. So it just recirculated in, into my body and it was having a party, all these toxins. Gosh. And that took me to a dark place, Julia, because yeah. when I mentioned it to the neurologist, they dismissed me again and said, well, that's MS. So it did take me to a dark place. And I remember at one point, when I had no feeling from my chin down, I wanted to die. And it wasn't because yeah. I wanted to leave this world. It's just I wanted the pain to end and I wanted my husband yes. to not be my carer because he didn't sign up for it. Yeah. And that night, I remember going to bed and we cried and I remember holding on to each other and hugging him, but I couldn't feel his touch. I was completely numb from the chin down. Oh, Maria. But I could feel his love. I couldn't mm. feel his touch, but I could feel his love. And I oh. said to him, tomorrow, I'm going to phone Exit. And of course, Exit is um, Swiss-assisted suicide. Yeah. I just had enough. And the next morning when I woke up, I had the first feeling in my fingertips. So it's literally like, as you got to the point, I can't manage this pain anymore. I can't be your patient anymore you're my husband you felt his love but you couldn't feel his touch mm -hmm. and yet as you got to the point that I'm going to ring exit life came back into your body I prayed in a way I'd never prayed before and because I was from a very religious background I had walked away from religion I consider myself to be spiritual but not religious mm -hmm. but that night I prayed and my husband prayed as we clung to each other and it was incredible because I had had it 
that was it. My mind was made up. I loved my husband so much. I did not want him to be my carer. He hadn't signed up for it, Julia. Like I learned about prayer, that prayer doesn't require any words because that night I couldn't string a sentence together. I think true prayer is something that happens with your soul. Yeah. And then Mm. the next morning I had the first feeling in my fingertips and I said to my husband, forget it completely disregarded the thought of taking my life. I said, I'm going to get better. And and that mountain that's in front of us, the Swiss mountain, I'm going to walk up it. Now, at this point, I couldn't walk to the bathroom. So how the heck was I going to walk up a thousand meter mountain? So you're asking about, you know, where I am now. That was a really, really dark place. And then my life changed. And I was doing so, so well for years. I had lost the function of my body, but then it came back. And of course, now I'm walking up the Swiss mountains every day. And it's just a joy. But you know what? Last year, it really hit me because I had a relapse. Oh, I'm sorry, Maria. And it really came out of nowhere. And I had convinced myself too for long enough that I didn't have MS. So I'd convinced myself that. But no, I have been given the diagnosis of MS. And I still have that diagnosis, but I've learned what I need to do to live well with it. And my health is completely different. But last year I was in Edinburgh in May and your friend, Dr. Chatterjee, I went to see him. I love Dr. Chatterjee. He's amazing. I love his message. And my husband and I went to hear him in Edinburgh and the place was packed, as you can imagine. Mm. And it was torrential rain outside. And, uh, Edinburgh. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> what do you expect? <laughs> mm. But one thing he said that me was emotional stress is real. And it's funny, I was sitting in that room and I was like, it felt as if there was nobody in that room and he was just speaking to me. It's like it was a message to you from God in some way. Yeah. And that was the me. And, you know, it's really bizarre, too, how we're having this uh, chat today. And the data is because this time last year was when I was having my relapse. And it was due to an emotional stress. Was it? That little text message, someone sharing their opinion about what they thought about me and what I could be doing or I should not be doing. And it was somebody I love immensely. And it hit me so badly that the next morning I woke up and the whole left side of my face was numb and I thought I'd taken a stroke. Gosh, Maria. So it gave you a physiological attack in your body. It's like those words and the emotion that they ignited in you kind of sent your system into a free fall. (laughs) Yeah. It was a shocker, but, you know, I had to go through it. I learned from it. You know, everything the mind says to the body hears, you can't separate the mind from the body. And when it comes to MS, you know, I have to be careful. This time last year, the whole month of August, I couldn't walk. So you were in a wheelchair for all of August? I was really struggling. Like, I was having to hold my husband, and I stayed in the Mm. apartment. And the other thing that triggered it was it was awfully hot and of course heat sensitivity and MS is a thing because of damaged nerves so this past year I have to say like um, I was really apprehensive about the summer at one point I thought of going back home to Scotland yeah you know it's a lot cooler and here it's been hitting 35 36 degrees thankfully it hasn't been like the southern parts of Europe so the message to people who have MS 
that I'm getting from you is that all of us have our own unique causes that lead to MS. Some we may discover, some we may not. And we will each have our own ways of supporting ourselves to live with MS as healthily and as well as possible. But what you've understood, and I guess having faced this challenge, what you've learned and what has helped you is everything you put into your system, what you watch, what you listen to, who you see, what you drink, what you eat, how you move, whether you move, all of that will affect your diagnosis. But also what you've really highlighted for me is maybe hidden things like your your teeth fillings that there is contention about. Some people will say that's not true and others will. The big thing I get from you is that you don't give up hope, that you have to keep believing that from where you are now, there is a route to get to a better place. And I can see that in your eyes, that you have this light in your eyes that's leading to a light, that you will live and love your husband and live a good life with MS. Absolutely. I exactly. Thanks for saying that because you said it beautifully. And and you saying that excites me. It's yeah. like it's my life, you know. And health starts with hope. You know, I get to decide on a daily basis what I want to think. I get to decide what I put in my body. I, no one else, not the doctors. I am responsible. And you know, I am living proof that I can change the trajectory of the disease. I don't know what the future holds. No one does, whether you have MS or not. No, I could get it tomorrow. Exactly. Nobody knows what the future holds. Control is an illusion, isn't it? It's a very 21st century one, but it's a real illusion. After my diagnosis, I was invited to uh, read a book, and you must probably have heard of this um, biologist. Um, Is it Bruce Lipton? Yes, I have heard of him. Yeah, and he writes in that book about a man um, that had been given a diagnosis of MS cancer esophagus cancer and uh, he had been given I think six months to live and he died within six weeks like far sooner than they expected him to die and when they did the autopsy they discovered there wasn't enough cancer to kill him so the question was well why did he die and it was just said in the book that he died with um, cancer not not from cancer and you know what that really changed how I viewed MS it really did. It changed everything for me that I get to decide and I have to be careful what meaning I give my diagnosis. Yes. That's a lovely way to end, isn't it? That you get to decide what meaning you give diagnosis and that you will live with hope and optimism and love in your life with MS. None of us know the future, no. but you're going to live as good and vibrant and loving and full a life as you can every day. Absolutely. And it's my choice. And that's what I choose to do. Good for you, Maria. Thank you so much. (laughs) Thank you for having me. A pleasure to talk to you, Julia. (laughs) Pleasure to talk to you too. Now, listeners, it's that time of the show that many of you eagerly anticipate each week, the moment when I'm joined by my two incredible psychotherapist daughters, Emily, who's a child psychotherapist, and Sophie, who's an adult psychotherapist. 
Let's hear what they have to say about today's enlightening conversation. I feel like I learned a lot from her just from this information that I had never even thought about or knew about. There was also something about just the way that she talks and the animation that she brings to her voice. It's always a joy to feel a person <laughs> through how yeah. they talk as well yeah. as the content of it's what they're saying. And in it, some and way. It made me think of the power of voice and body language and how we are and how we say things, as well as what we are actually saying. I think it's interesting, that point, isn't it? I think it's one of the subtle cues that we actually pick up, which we don't realise we're picking up, is people who are traumatised often have very monotonic voices, and their body language is very different often. And we wouldn't even say we know it, but we can often feel it when we're talking to someone. And someone who has a voice that moves up and down a lot is often a sign of someone who's emotionally more well. And you'd pick that up in therapy, don't you? She had some lovely phrases, didn't she? One of the ones she said is, what the mind says, the body hears. Which I love that. I thought was lovely. That is very good advice for people with children. That's a really basic thing that you could do with your child is really strengthen that mind-body connection. Because I think what you want is your mind and body to be able to talk to each other <laughs> and not be separate. And the more that you could just do really basic things like you did so of saying, like, where in your body do you feel that? Like, what colour would it be? If it could speak, what noise would it make? All those small things, I think, can help your child be in touch with the body and where they feel things in their body. And the more they're able to do that, the more they're going to be able to regulate their body and therefore regulate their feelings. Mm. When she was talking and she was talking about how her experiences made her actually question the authority figures, of doctors. And I'm a person who's pretty deferential to doctors, lawyers, people in authority, always have been. Probably brought up to be. I'd also been lucky enough not to be in positions where we haven't been able to trust most of the people who are in those positions. Probably also someone who grew up trusting in my sort of felt sense quite a lot, like you're talking about, that awareness of how your body feels and that being information. And I was reading Carl Rogers, who's a founding father of person-centered therapy. And in it, he had this sentence, I was like, oh, yeah, that's so true. Is it's not that trusting that felt sense of the body of what it's telling you and what you're feeling is infallible. It's just it's the best that we've got <laughs> in terms of telling nice. us what to listen to. Of course, you can still get it wrong and make wrong decisions, but the intellect on its own without feeling is more fallible. You know, whereas that whole well, mind body together, and then you've talked about it in a different way sometimes in terms of like the wise mind is like the irrational mind. That sense of like your whole being tuning in is such a useful way of navigating life. I think it also speaks to the power that doctors, whoever has over your experience, because I think Maria was really able to trust her instincts and trust her body and in a way that doctors weren't listening to her and I think doctors are told this but I also think doctors have the power the other way too my experience was that I couldn't have children naturally so I had fertility treatment and I went to see this incredible doctor who I was very lucky to have and because I'd had an eating disorder when I was younger 
I had this sense that it was my fault that I couldn't have children, that I had failed my body and now my body was failing me. And therefore, it, I couldn't feel sad about it because it was my own fault. And therefore, it was very complicated. I couldn't just be, be like, oh, you know, poor me. <laughs> I felt like, not poor me. Like, it, it's you did this to yourself. You deserve this. And I went to see this wonderful doctor. And I hadn't even said, but she obviously knew. And she said to me, your experience is like going out into the road and not looking both ways and being hit by a bus. Yes, like, are there things that you could have done differently to not have got hit by a bus? Yeah, but is it incredibly unlucky that as you were crossing the road at that moment, the bus came along? Also, yes. And there was something about that image that made me feel like it was not like exactly relief. It allowed me to have compassion for myself. And it gave you space, didn't it, in some yes, way? Yes, and that because she was a doctor, <laughs> I could feel like if someone else had said that to me, I'd be like, you don't really know because you don't know the science of it mm. and you don't know that. I suppose it just speaks to anyone in a position of power when you're with somebody vulnerable, how much you can change somebody's experience regardless of the outcome. There's a lot of research about the placebo effect, about how you're told something has a big impact on whether you get better or not. So I loved your discussion of glimmers and triggers. And it made me think of analytic concept of ghosts in the nursery, which is a really beautiful paper written by this woman called Selma Freiberg in the 1970s. And in it, she talks about how we unconsciously repeat these patterns of pain and fear that we experienced as young children. And unless we can bring those experiences to the consciousness, we accidentally repeat the cycle with our own young children. And she does it through using a case study and it's a very beautiful paper, which I really recommend anybody reading actually. It's really accessible. It's not super complicated. And I think it's such a powerful idea. And then in the early 2000s, this woman called Alicia Lieberman, who I actually trained with, she coined the concept of angels in the nursery. That, I love that. Yeah, which is such a sort of lo such a lovely phrase as well. Yeah. That as well as being impacted by these painful experiences of our past, we can also draw on the experiences that we've had of being loved and understood and met and the more that we can bring into consciousness those experiences that we might have had as a young child, that actually that can be a disruptor of patterns of trauma, of patterns of fear, of patterns of pain. And I think historically, we in the therapeutic community, in the analytic community, focus a lot on patterns of pain. And I think it's just very lovely to also focus on the light that there is as well and use that. I guess where you put your attention, you get your response. So if you're always on the what's missing, what was bad, the ghosts, that's where your emotions will be expressed. Whereas if you look for the angels, the glimmers, that will build mm. your resilience. And I guess it's the assumption, is it, and not often wrong, but that pain is often the hard thing to talk about. But funny enough, I'm not sure how good we are. <laughs> 
and talking about all the good stuff either. And we can be superficial. Like I've noticed it with motherhood sometimes that it can be easy to complain about lots of superficial things that are quite hard about mothering. I know people wax lyrical about how amazing it is, but to actually like really tell someone this little moment that you might have had with your child that really made your heart like fill or a connection you had with a friend or a parent. Those are really intimate experiences. They also need safe people and spaces to be shared, don't they? And to tap into is a vulnerable experience to some extent to tap into like real feelings of being loved is an intimate thing, isn't it? The other thing I wanted to say about Maria before we end is just to note the struggle of when you have chronic illness and not being believed, I think it's often can be harder sometimes than the illness itself. I know she got a full diagnosis, but not really being believed that your experience is what it is. It creates another layer of work for people to carry around. An isolation. An isolation mm. and feeling very misunderstood. You doubt yourself. And the thing I think that we learned from Maria was she really learned to trust herself. So the MS happened for me, not to me. And so that she trusted what was right for her and what wasn't right for her. Even when she got to the lowest points where she thought of exit, she followed her instinct and what was right for her and actually let her love in. We've had lots on this podcast of where love is actually life-changing, that she couldn't feel his touch, but she could feel his love. And she felt different in the morning. She began to feel her body come back alive. How powerful is that? The other thing that struck me about Maria's story is the relationship between stress and agency. And I think there's actually quite a lot of research in it that shows that often things become infinitely more stressful if we feel like we have very little control over them or that there's very little you can do about the so-called problem or issue that you've been faced with. And I thought hers was a lovely story of, of someone trying to pass out what they can and can't control in life. What did she have agency over? She had agency over what she ate. She had agency over removing the toxins. What she put in her body. What she put red. in her body. Yeah. But she doesn't have agency over the disease. It can still strike her down in the middle of a hot summer. And trying to get, and that's challenge when we're under stress and acknowledging that the little less control we have does create greater stress. So looking for the places where you do have and letting go where you don't is quite a help. You know, it's that serenity mm. prayer from the AA, that power to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can. And the hardest part, I think, which is the wisdom to know the difference. <laughs> thank you both so much. Particularly thank you to Maria for having such wisdom on herself and how she expressed it. I think we all learned a lot from her. For those of you listening, thank you for listening and do share this podcast, rate and review it. You'll hear us next week.